This is Reverend Bob Moore, Executive Director of the Coalition for Peace Action based in Princeton, New Jersey, and I welcome you to this episode of Peace Matters. We are just recently, in our recent past, we've had uh, the Memorial Day weekend as well as the anniversary of D-Day, and so we've been thinking and talking a lot about our veterans. And today we have a very special veteran who is our guest and that is Richard Moody. Uh, Richard has been a great asset to our work in the Coalition for Peace Action as a veteran. Uh, he has given a lot of uh, added credibility to our lobby visits and to our witness. Uh, in many ways, he's spoken for our events, uh, shown up for a great many of our lobby visits and so forth. So I would like to welcome you, Richard, and uh, I know that you started out as a fighter pilot and now you have transitioned into being a peace activist. Can you tell us about your journey? Certainly. Um, you can tell from my accent I'm not from this country. I was born in England, but um, interestingly, my grandfather was a Church of England vicar, but my father was an admiral in the Navy. In fact, he ended up as Commander-in-Chief South Atlantic and South um, South America station in South Africa where I grew up as a boy and uh, I never had any particular intention of joining the Navy but it just seemed a natural thing I was never pushed to do it and I had got a scholarship to the Naval College in England which is called Britannia Royal Naval College Dartmouth which is the equivalent of Annapolis and I then uh, got commissioned and I did two seagoing jobs before I became a fighter pilot. One of them was actually the meteorologist and the number two navigator to the Queen on the Royal Yacht going around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, after that, I then did my flying training, which we did in those days with the Royal Air Force. And I joined what's called the Fleet Air Arm. And I did two uh, Far Eastern tours on aircraft carriers of two years each and was involved in no major conflicts, although I was uh, involved in a, what was called the uh, Indonesian confrontation with Malaya mm. and uh, involved in some um, horrible stuff that was going on in Yemen, which is very mm. much in the, in the news yes. these days, yes. and uh, other, other minor conflicts. But um, after that, I was selected and asked to go and fly with the United States Navy at Navy Miramar in California. And uh, I flew the F-4 Phantom and the A-4 Skyhawk. And I was, in a way, if you can say, fortunate that um, I was there when Top Gun was formed. So I was in the initial cadre of Top Gun instructors. Oh, I see. Um, just going back to my, my, my sort of experiences, um, I have actually lived in five different countries and visited over 135. And I like to think I understand the cultures and creeds of many countries mm. other than the ones I've lived in. Mm -hmm. um, but going to the U.S. Navy was an amazing experience, but fortunately uh, I was not an American citizen, so they could not send me to Vietnam, although unfortunately uh. I trained an awful lot of pilots as fighter pilots to go to Vietnam, and mm -hmm. a number of them, of course, killed. Uh, but I was the ordnance officer, so I was guilty of dropping many, many bombs and training a lot of pilots to drop bombs, fire missiles, mainly in the deserts in uh, Arizona on the ranges. Mm -hmm. and. Um, after that, I had one more tour with the Royal Navy, flying off with another aircraft carrier. And then I joined uh, BOAC, British Airways, uh, which is, which BOAC is now the long-haul division of British Airways. And mm -hmm. I think in that way, it was actually 
um, a very good experience because I flew all over the world, particularly the Middle East and India and Pakistan and the African continent. And so I got to see a lot of these countries. And in those days, we had a lot of time off. It wasn't like airline flying these days, long layovers. Um, but I eventually left British Airways and became an aviation reinsurance broker in New York. But the crazy thing was the Royal Navy asked me to come back into the business when they reformed the Royal Naval Reserve Air Branch, which had been closed down after the Korean War. Mm. And I f it flew once a year for a month in Europe flying a single-seat fighter for the Royal Navy. And I can honestly say I think it was at that time I started to have serious second thoughts about my military career. So up until this point, would you say that you uh, were uh, saying that these military activities you were engaged in were needed and necessary and that we were the good guys in the white hats fighting the bad guys or something like that? Yes, I think there's a lot of truth to that because mm -hmm. um, I hate to say it, but one is definitely brainwashed yes. when you become an enlisted guy or a naval officer mm -hmm. or taught to obey orders and you don't dispute orders right. and you don't really question it. Um, luckily I remember I never had any desire to go and kill people in Vietnam. I never did. Mm -hmm. um, but of course I was responsible uh, third hand for doing that because right. I was um, the ordnance officer and a top right. gun instructor. Right. Um, but it, I think it was the reserve time that made me really start to think about it all because here I was working in New York as a civilian, going over to Europe for four weeks, being paid as a lieutenant commander, uh, including obviously flight play, and, and we did drop a lot of bombs and fire missiles and guns and things in those days over there, and mainly in uh, Scandinavia and Norway and all, and all those places. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly thought, that, now, something's wrong with this picture. This is a bit of a, this is just a paid boondoggle, which is uh, training people to, to kill. Mm -hmm. and. And so I was starting to have very se serious second thoughts about it. And of course, then I left the, the reserve. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long after that I met you, Reverend Moore, <laughs> and, uh, which was definitely a turning point in my life. I have to say that, and I mean that very sincerely. Um, at the same time, I met other wonderful people like the Reverend Ernest Gordon, mm -hmm. uh, who was the dean of the chapel for Princeton University Chapel, I think, for 37 years who uh, found peace very much in the latter half of his life, having been a prisoner of war with the Japanese, and other, other individuals. And, um, and I think, in a way, the turning point may well have been the lies that were told to get us into the Iraq war. Right. Because I'd seen all that in Vietnam with the Tonkin Gulf instance, and unfortunately, yes. I think we're getting the same story now about yes. Iran, yes. trying to sucker the public into thinking we should attack another country. And yes. so, um, I started attending the Coalition for Peace Actions meetings, as you know, and thank you for your kind words. I'm very stimulated with being with you and what I've been doing and, and getting to know people like Larry Wilkinson and the Reverend Jesse Jackson and some of the wonderful people you've had to our meetings and well, gatherings. Thank you. Thank um, you. And then not long after that, obviously following along the lines of peace, I started uh, looking into the Quaker faith. Right. Um, and I've been a Quaker now for about eight years. And w whereas I'm a little bit frustrated that um, many of my Quaker friends are not active in the mm -hmm, peace movement, because mm -hmm. of course peace is at the forefront of the Quaker faith, right, as you know right. only too well. I know your, your wife is a Quaker. And my daughter, and your daughter. yes. yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is really the path I've taken. And mm -hmm. it's getting to the stage where we are 
as you know better than I do, extremely involved in trying to, to, to um, stop some of the horrible things that we are doing around the world. Right. For, and I'm not just saying the United States. I did become right. a citizen many, many years ago. I'm a dual citizen. I have mm -hmm. a European passport and American citizenship. And my wife is an American who I met when I was flying with the US Navy all those years uh -huh. ago. And um, it, the UK, to an extent, is guilty too, because although they don't have the money and the funds and the size of the forces. But uh, they're doing an awful lot what the US tells them to do. And as we know, um, we haven't won any wars since World War II. We haven't declared mm. any wars, but right. we've killed, right. hate to say it, I think our figure we think is somewhere between 20 and 30 million people. Right. For, for what good? Um, right. when we really haven't achieved anything except blowback hatred against us. Right. Well, your, your story of your sort of beginning to question and then turning in a different direction resonates with my own pilgrimage, too, because uh, I was raised in the Midwest, son of a Navy officer, and um, so uh, Vietnam was the big issue as I was coming of age, and I was very much a hawk, and even before Vietnam, I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know, the sort of macho reaction I had as a 13-year-old saying, why don't we just blow Cuba off the map? And, you know, you say dumb stuff when you're that age, <laughs> and, but you don't realize it. And then when I entered my first year in college, I was very much of a hawk on Vietnam, but I was going by the recruiting table for Dow Chemical in that first semester of my first year at Purdue University, and I saw a giant blown up picture, that iconic picture of the napalm child mm. running away, you know, with her back was on fire yeah. and so on. And I just said, this doesn't look right. And once I started to look into it, I found the same thing that you did, that this was a war of mass deception, just like the Iraq war. And so there's so much manipulation of the truth, you know, that saying the first casualty of war is truth. Mm -hmm. There's so much manipulation of, of getting the population to support these wars and it, it's becoming more and more of an endless war. So I, I resonate with your uh, sense that it was, it was time to turn in a new direction. But continue with your story. Well, uh, ironically, and I absolutely agree with you, Bob, but um, in a way, I don't regret having been in the military because mm -hmm. there is terrific comradeship. Mm -hmm. Having got into business after that, I, was re I realized soon it was dog-eat-dog dog, even amongst the fellow people you worked with. Right. Whereas we, in a fighter squadron on an aircraft carrier, you're all looking after each other. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we did have a number of fatalities. None of them actually landing on carriers, which of course is a very dangerous thing, but various other uh, accidents that happened. And of course, in Vietnam, a lot of them, a number were shot down. So what, what were some of the uh, carriers and uh, well, you may ships not have, that they, you they served were on? I mean, I flew off the USS Forrestal, mm -hmm. but the longer tours I did in the Far East, uh, in those days Britain had a bit of an empire, and we called it East of Suez, and we did at least a year East of Suez. So that's uh, the Indian Ocean, Hong Kong, mm -hmm. Malaysia, Australia. The carriers I flew off were ones called HMS Ark Royal, mm -hmm. HMS Eagle, mm -hmm. and then again HMS Ark Royal. Mm -hmm. And the name Ark Royal goes back to about 1400. I think there was a ship, obviously not an aircraft carrier, called Ark Royal. Um, but uh, there is tremendous comradeship, and you're looking after each other. And I don't regret that. Right. Um, but when I'm you when you see the movie Top Gun, for example, do you have that sense of exhilaration and excitement about what you're doing? Not really. Mm. Um, there's a slight side story to that because um, a good friend of mine, Pete Pettigrew, uh, call sign Viper, which mm -hmm. is the only true call sign they used in the movie, 
-hmm. was the technical director. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, it was not like that in Top Gun. Okay. It was uh, made to sell seats right. in movie theaters. Right. And ironically, the director was a Brit, Tony Scott, mm -hmm. who sadly committed suicide not mm -hmm. that long ago. Mm -hmm. And Pete Pettigrew, Viper, uh, kept saying, this is not the way we did it. And Tony right. Scott said, I don't care. This, I'm here right. to make money. Right. Right. And he, we, we think he offered uh, Pete, who I'm in touch with to this day, uh, two ways of being uh, paid for his due, for his role. And one was, we think, a $100,000 lump sum, which didn't seem too bad. Mm. But the other was an eighth of a percent of the box office for life, which he turned down. And I suspect that's an enormous sum of money. Well, speaking but of the way a film can be so influenced by the desire to maximize profit, how, how much do you think that's a factor in the repeated wars that we keep getting into well, over and over? that's a good point. I don't know about that, mm -hmm. but obviously filmmakers jump on any war because unfortunately people like to see shootings and right. car chases where people are killed. The sort of movies I keep absolutely away from. Right. I don't want to see any death and destruction right. anywhere. Right. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it's really interesting that the, the public are very unaware of the horrors of war. Mm -hmm. And I blame not the third level or second level media because we know that Democracy Now! and Truthdig right. and Antiwar.com do. But most people don't look at that. Right. And if you look at the mainstream media, even a supposedly liberal station like MSNBC, mm -hmm. I know for a year they went a full year without mentioning one drone strike. Right. Which of course is kept from the public and the Pentagon and the politicians love it because it's not boots on the ground. And yet, right. as we know only too well, thousands are being killed all, all over yes. the Middle East. Yes. Uh, for what gain? And most of them are civilians. They're not yes. terrorists. I noticed a similar thing with PBS, which you think of as a very mm. sort of centrist, you know, just seeking the truth uh, source of the media. And yet, during the lead up to the Iraq war, uh, and even during the protests against it, they talked a lot about the movement against the Iraq war. They never a single time had a leader of that movement on their show. Right. They had analysts who yes. talk about yes. what's happening in the anti-war yeah. movement, but they didn't have anybody who was actually a leader of it. I thought that was a, a big gap in their coverage. Yes. Uh, and I'm also very cynical, to be honest, about the senior officers, the generals and the admirals, because mm -hmm. um, War is, is their job. I mean, they wouldn't have a job if there wasn't any wars. Right, I mean, because right. the, we wouldn't be spending whatever it is 10 times the next, yeah, more ten, than the next 10 yeah, countries right, on, on, right. on militarization mm -hmm. when we have serious problems at home with infrastructure and healthcare and public schools and obviously the gun situation and things like that. Um, so it's, uh, it's really quite disturbing the lack of information that is out there. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people. Uh, really aren't interested, I think, and yet right. it could come home to roost on us. Uh, easily, easily, easily. And I think one of the cases in point is drone warfare, which I know you've been very active protesting at the Drone Command Center in Horsham, Pennsylvania, and doing some very good writing and research on this issue of drone warfare. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who you mentioned earlier, the former chief of staff to Colin Powell, uh, he is in one of our videos that we have with the Coalition for Peace Action half-hour educational video 
And he says in it, he wouldn't be part of something like drone warfare. It's just not honorable. You're just, right. you're, there's no responsibility. You're not seeing the people you kill. And a very significant portion of the people you kill are innocent civilians. So yeah. the, no, no weapon has yet been invented, a bomb or anything else, that can distinguish between civilian and military. And so he, he basically says we're inviting, he says it's only a matter of time till a drone is used on, on Times Square. Absolutely. And so this will come back to bite us. It's a question yes. of when and not if. Yes. It'll come back to bite us. Already we're seeing drone warfare proliferate all over the world. Yes, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right, because uh, we are operating drones out of 24 countries that I'm aware of, mm -hmm. and yet there are another 25 countries that have drones themselves. So right. as you say, it's, it, retaliation is sure to happen, if right. not immediately on Times Square, but perhaps on a U.S. embassy somewhere around the world or a hotel where U.S. businessmen are known to be right. staying. Right. Uh, and right. it's not an expensive tool. That it isn't. Drone. It could, isn't. That, it's it's that, quite accessible. ISIS yes. has used drones. Yes. And so you can use off-the-shelf yes. technology to create a drone and carry a real yes. bomb on it. And the other, the other thing that I think is, is worth discussing is the fact that we have um, something like 1,200 military bases around the world. Right. We have um, 800 in the U.S. and 400 in other countries. Mm -hmm. By comparison, Russia has two. Right, <laughs> And right. China has one. Yes. And ironically, Russia is in Syria in Tartus, which is a seaport, because they have a, a treaty with, with Syria, so I guess right. you could argue they will say that they are legally there. Right. And they, the other one, ironically, is in Cameron Bay, which was our big naval port during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And China has, has one, uh, which is um, in Djibouti, on the Red Sea, which is where we also have a drone base. So that it, it's a really crazy situation. It is, and I know we've talked about the, the wars or the Iraq war and other things that we've been engaged in, the Vietnam War, but I think something that's under the radar for a lot of people is how many military interventions we've done all over the world. And throughout Latin America, you know, we've done dozens of interventions and all mostly through the CIA. And so we depose governments. We depose the government of Iran at one point, the democratically go elected government of Iran. So, of course, this is going to create resentment. People don't see us as the, the good policeman of the world that's protecting the innocent. They see us as the oppressor who is using military force to get our way over and over around the, uh, around the world. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned Iran because, as you say, in 1953, we... Uh, the CIA and Britain's MI6 deposed Mossadegh, who was the democratic right. elected prime minister, mm -hmm. and put in the Shah, who was the most despotic dictator of all time. Right. And there's no doubt in my mind that the 1979 revolution right. was brought about by that. Right. Result of our actions. Right. And we still seem to have this absolute thing about Iran based on that revolution, which is something that we really were responsible for. Right. And so now, We've had these people like Bolton and Pompeo, Bolton for 20 years, just itching to go and attack Iran, which yes. would be an absolute disaster. And I suspect we're getting a lot of false, false uh, information over these tankers. I mean, I have yes. various theories about that, and yes. of course none of them are true. But um, I think possibly even, and I know Dick, who sadly couldn't be with us today, right. he and I have discussed, and we think even Eric Prince's mercenaries might have done it. because. 
Yes. We're just trying to make uh, people feel as the reason why should we attack Iran. I think if there's one thing we should have learned from the deceptions that have already taken place, the, the Gulf of Tonkin, which was totally a hoax, we now know, and the supposed weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which turned out to be a hoax as well. So if there's one thing we should have learned is be skeptical of when they start saying, I know for sure, as President Trump just said in the last day mm -hmm. or two, I know for sure that Iran did this. No, there's, there's a very good sources that say, yeah. there's a good reason to be skeptical of this. Now, I'm not saying Iran is some kind of great country, you're always a peaceful country, there are troubling things about their behavior too, but we need to be going to the negotiating table and dealing with those in peaceful ways. You know, we're, we're really, teetering when the two, when the hardliners in the U.S. and the hardliners in Iran are just reinforcing each other right now, because yes. the Iran Revolutionary Guard is very much of a hardline organization yes. within Iran. Yes. We could slide into a war that's unintended, just like we yes. did in World War I. Nobody wanted World War I, Absolutely. but it happened anyway. Yes. And, and look, of course, again, sticking to Iran a little bit, I mean, look at the way we supported, ironically, Iraq in their eight-year war in the 1980s right. against right. Iran, and we even supplied them with chemical weapons. Yes. And then in 1989, we shot down an Iran air airliner right. in cold blood, killing close to 300 innocent people. And the captain of the USS Vincennes, which was right. the destroyer that launched the missile, right. subsequently got given the Medal of Freedom. Yes. Well, what sort of message is that giving? Exactly, giving exactly, exactly. So I think there's a lot of troubling things about our sliding into these wars, our use of the military repeatedly, and as you said, right now, we've got a president who says, I don't want war with Iran, on the one hand, but then if he really means it, he's got two super hawks that are running his foreign policy, Pompeo and, and John Bolton. Yeah. And they're both well-known hawks who yeah. want to have war with Iran. Bolton, for decades, has been saying we should do regime change in yes. Iran. Yes. Well, we all know what happened when regime change was yes. attempted in Iraq. Yes. And it was one of the worst boondoggles in U.S. history, with you know millions of people died from yes. that boondoggle. And so yes. these have real consequences. And by the way, d I, you probably know, Pompeo came first in his class uh, in West Point. Yes, um, yes. But the other thing is, um, from a personal point of view, you, I think you know I worked in a Syrian refugee camp yes. in Greece in 2017. Yes. Tell us so I about experienced that. Yes. Uh -huh. um, the Syrians themselves, who were, in my book, wonderful people. Mm -hmm. uh, they were all in desperate situation, and so many of them had been separated from their families. Often it was the women and children who had managed to get out. They had to pay some coyote to get them across, uh, mainly from Turkey, across to the Greek islands and then to the Greek mainland. And a lot of um, the men were still there. They couldn't get out. They were perhaps trapped by ISIS. Um, but they were all very, very interesting people to, to talk, and I taught them some English. And I also sat and talked to them a bit like we're doing about sort of yes. the world in general. And I don't want to sound very anti-American. Right. You know, I'm a very pro-American. Right. I love this country. Yes. I would never have come become a citizen, but I, I think we have to uh, face the facts that we're not doing um, the right things around the world. Right. And what was interesting is some of these um, Syrian refugees said to me, look, uh, it's a bit like uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. He was a terrible guy, but I know the Iraqis will tell you that, that they were better off under him than what 
you and other countries as the USA have done in right. that country. Exactly. And it's the same with Assad. He's not a great guy, but we were a lot better off. At least we, our towns weren't, weren't just in, aren't in, weren't in rubble in those days, right. which we are now. Iraq actually became a much less stably governed country. Yes after we toppled yes. the government there. Yeah. And so ISIS was able to come in and take over two-thirds of the country with hardly a bullet yeah. fired. Yes. They just came in and the Iraqi forces just fled. Yes. They took off their yeah. uniforms and fled. So, you know, this is not really the way that we should, shouldn't be the kingmaker of the world trying to say who ought to be the government of this country or that country. We need to really engage in respect and diplomacy that's what builds long-term solutions and long-term security. And I, and I think, um, sadly, this, this kind of feeling of American exceptionalism is very dangerous mm -hmm. because we're not prepared to listen to any other country or follow anybody else's lead. Yes. That we know it all, and it's been proved that we don't know it all. Yes. Uh, on another part of the world I've been very involved in is Central America because right. I've been sponsoring kids for the last 35 years in various countries, and I've been to a number of them. And the country I've spent most time is surprisingly El Salvador, which of course is very much in the news now. And I think, again, it's very disappointing that the mainstream media never reflect on why do you think there are so many refugees from a country like El Salvador. The total destabilization started under Reagan in 1980 when we, um, we trained the El Salvadorian army Mm -hmm. particularly the senior officers, the School of Americas, which was in Panama and I think now is in Georgia, and they've had to change the name. And um, I've actually spent time in the village of El Mazoti, which you may not know about, but it's a mm. terrible massacre that was right. orchestrated by us, mm -hmm. where the FMLN guerrillas were kind of winning. Mm -hmm. And ironically, the FMLN, the, the, the development of that is now the, the party in power, the Democratic Party in power in El Salvador. Right, but right. they told all the campesinos, um, the, the peasants, go to this village El Mazoti. We're making, mounting a big campaign against the FML and guerrillas, and you'll be safe in the village. Mm. What did they do? They got about 900 villagers in there and oh. killed them all, except oh. for one person. Yes. And, um, and yes. this is really the start of the destabilization. And then that led to... Um, them escaping and going to LA and getting into drugs and guns and going back again. So I think our fingerprint is on a lot of totally. that. Same with Nicaragua as Nicaragua, well. Chile. Honduras. Yes. And of course we Dominican don't want- Dominican Republic. We've toppled legally, you know, uh, uh, legitimate governments in country after country. Yeah, I mean, very good point because um, as you know, the most recent one was probably Honduras, right. where we toppled uh, under right. Hillary. Right. Uh, and we've, I think we're trying very hard to do the same in Venezuela. But it my figures show that, that yeah. we have interfered. And of course, we don't, we're not at all happy if Russia has and is continuing to interfere. But my figures show that we have actually interfered in the elections in 85 countries since World oh, War II. Oh, wow. 85. That's, that's shameful. Yeah. Yes, I want to circle back to this issue of patriotism and peace. And, you know, we think of our soldiers as people that are truly patriotic. They're willing to lay down their life in terms of protecting the security and defending their nation. And that truly is admirable. Uh, but, you know, we did a series of, actually starting in 2001, the summer of 2001, in conjunction with the July 4th holiday, we started doing annual events for about the next 12 or 15 years called Peace is Patriotic. We didn't know that 9-1-1 was going to happen that fall. And boy, oh boy, was that timely because the whole idea that somehow it's unpatriotic 
to advocate for peace instead of war. It's unpatriotic to criticize your government and call for change when you think it's doing something wrong. That is a wrong-headed uh, approach to what patriotism is about. I agree entirely. Yes. So uh, we, we need to really challenge that notion and, and show people that the highest form of patriotism is trying to change your country when you think it's doing the wrong thing. Let me just tell you, one of the people we honored, we would give out Patriot for Peace awards at that annual event. And one of the people we honored was the station chief for the CIA in Lebanon. And he talked to me when we were uh, traveling actually to one of our candidate briefings about what it was like when he was doing that. And what he said is that he had to recruit spies for the United States, people who would help us. And he said money was never the thing that convinced them to do, to do what he was asking them to do. He said it was always because they liked the ideals of the United States. Mm. They liked a country that had those ideals and was trying to live up to them. And so that's really the best of what, that's our strength, in other Absolutely. words. If we aren't sort of staying grounded in that, then nobody's gonna wanna help us or in other parts of the world, yes. help us with our security and other needs. Well, we've always been a, a, a wonderfully accepting country, except perhaps until lately. And it always amazes me that so many refugees, and they are refugees, they're not just immigrants, they are escaping possible death and destruction or whatever uh, in their countries. They want to come into the States, right. even though it's being made extremely difficult, but they still want to come here because we are a very accepting country. Right. I mean, I always say, with my kind of international background, this is the country where it's so easy to make friends. People yes. are so open, so yes. friendly to me. Yes. I, I, I'm always amazed when I talk to total strangers how friendly they are and they talk to you and they're very warm. And a lot of countries don't behave like that. They don't. It may take That's a right. lot longer to break, break in with them. And America is a very accepting and wonderful, diverse country. On the whole. And I love the diversity. On the whole, on I, the whole I, it is. But I of course, there are elements. The that, there are elements strength. that. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people, including people in very high places yes. right now, yes. that are beating a different drum of division. Yes. Yes. and of wanting to have white nationalism be the yes. upper hand in, in everything. And I think that actually weakens us. It seriously weakens us. Because then people don't admire us. They feel repelled, repulsed by what's being done at the highest levels of this government right now. So we've got some very big challenges ahead if we're going to overcome that uh, and, and really create a country that stands for peace and justice. Yes, I mean, you're, I, I experienced that myself because, as I say, I've lived in a number of countries. In fact, we're leaving for France tomorrow for mm -hmm. a big family gathering of, of English, French, and American. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of time in England and I've lived in other countries. And um, people are telling me they're very, very concerned of the direction America is going mm. right now. The current political situation is, mm -hmm. is not uh, conducive to to getting other countries to admire America. Right. A lot of my French friends and English friends uh, and most of my family are actually in Australia and I don't hear often too much about that because they're going through a kind of a right-wing movement there as well. Yes. Um, and, uh, but it is disturbing because uh, America was always, of course, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and, and I'm just worried that this is all slipping away. Yes, and I mean in every realm, whether it's political, diplomatic, or even military, we need to be working in alliance with other countries. The United States is a big and powerful country, 
but we can't do a lot of the things, the changes that need to be hap happening. We can't do those on our own. NATO, for example, yeah. Donald Trump has been criticizing NATO like crazy. Well, it is it as a military alliance, it held fast, and we used deterrence to deter any attack from the former Soviet Union, and that worked for a long time. Yes, and so there there were a lot of you know. Uh, wars in other places, but not in Europe. Yes. And so in a way that worked, and that worked because the alliance held fast. Now it's every day it's being undermined, And but our alliances with so many countries, tr President Trump wants to do all these trade wars by ourselves, and I think all of this is undermining a sense that the United States used to be perceived as the indispensable country, the sort of leader of mm. the free world. That's all being undermined, and in, this, in the process, our ability to resolve uh, conflicts peacefully is being steadily undermined. Yes, and another area that really concerns me is, is the foreign, foreign office, the, or the, the, the diplomatic service. Yes. Because so few of them are actual diplomats. Right. It's probably some used car salesman who gave a lot of money to the campaign or whatever. Yes. And they have no clue. Yes, and um, and some of them uh, let the the professionals in the in the diplomatic service get on with it. Others try to interfere. Yes, and that really worries me because, as you probably remember, Churchill said, "War is the failure of diplomacy." Right, and that is so true. Yes, and he always said, uh, using a funny expression, "Jaw, jaw, jaw," before war, yes. war, war. And yes, I talk before war. Yes, and we're not doing that. We're we not aren't. doing that. We are As just as you've said, we're not. Yes. Uh, we're not sitting at the table and trying to sort things out in a in a grown-up fashion. Well, maybe just to uh, move toward wrapping up this podcast, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation with you. But let maybe let me move toward an, uh, a campaign that we initiated in the Coalition for Peace Action in 2013. And that was for diplomacy, not war with Iran. It looks like it's needed now more than ever. And the good news is that things were not that different in 2013 from what they are right now. There was a lot of talk, a lot of military moves being made, a lot of threats of, of bombing Iran's nuclear facilities, whether it was Israel or the U.S. or some combination. And there was a lot of talk of going to a military engagement with Iran. It's a very scary time, as, t as today is. It mm. wasn't un that unlike today. And we began this campaign, and because we had really experienced and knowledgeable diplomats, we were so honored to have Ambassador Wendy Sherman mm. for our annual conference in multi-faith service last year, and she was the key leader. But she said she had literally hundreds of experts that she was working with day in and day out and do over a long slog from 2013 until finally in 2015 she reached the finish line. So there was two years of actual intense uh, negotiations that finally got to the finish line mm. and reached a verifiable agreement with Iran that, that would keep them away from having nuclear weapons capability by at least a year. And that's what President Trump just pulled out of uh, yes, six uh, months or so ago. And so, yeah. you know, that was a big accomplishment and it showed that it can be can done. Be if done. You, it's not easy, yeah. it takes a long slog, it takes determination. I have great admiration for Ambassador Sherman. Yes. She's just an amazing woman. Right. It was, I feel so honored to have met her. Any listeners who want to actually see her speech that she gave to us can find it on our website. Just go to recent mm. events and scroll mm. down to the 
a November 2018 yeah. conference, and you can see yes. her speech, right, that yes. was recorded, actually by David, who I also want to give a shout out to here as we close. David Crow is the producer of this podcast, and he was the inspiration for it in the first place. So thank you very much, David, for being our inspiration. Can I make just and one way, oh, sure. Yeah, I wanted uh, to give you a chance to well, say Well, no, no, just one way. I really yeah. appreciate you asking me to speak. But, and I know we've discussed this before, perhaps we should stop to think how would we react mm. if countries were doing to us what we're doing to them. Yes. Now you take the Persian Gulf from the Straits of uh, Hormuz and um, all that lot. Mm -hmm. We are all over that with, with an aircraft carrier, missile mm -hmm. firing destroyers and all that sort of stuff. And we get very excited if we see an Iranian vessel with a missile. Well, it's their part of the world. Right. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way uh, condoning them if they use right. the missiles, but I'm right. not surprised. Right. And as I think we've said, how would we react if the Iranian right. Navy was patrolling the Gulf of Mexico or the east right. coast of New Jersey? Right. We right. would uh, be very, very excited and angry. And that's exactly what we're doing, all of, not just in the Middle East, but in China, as you know, the disputed yes. islands. We're poking our nose into everything. I know a number of times you've given the example, how would we feel if a drone strike happened and you used the restaurant right there in your hometown of Cranberry, right. New Jersey? How would we feel if you were in this restaurant and suddenly a drone strike came down and killed everybody in the restaurant? Well, you're the whole country is going to be very angry and want to strike back. Yes, it, it creates a yeah, blowback. Yes, my analogy was that there was a, um, a guy out to get toppled Putin and Putin tracked him down and he escaped and went to live in my village, Cranberry, and used every Saturday morning had lunch at Teddy's Diner. Right. And uh, by then, uh, Putin had drones on destroyers, which is yep. happening everywhere, and the destroyer legally came to 12 and a half miles off the Jersey coast, because the territory right. limit's 12, launched the drone, blew up Teddy's, killed this one supposed, call him a terrorist, yeah. and killed another 40 innocent villagers. Exactly, exactly. Exactly as you said. Well, how would we feel about that? Yes, and there are certainly studies that show that every time we use a drone, on average, it's something like for every militant, quote unquote, killed, because a lot of times the militants, they don't even know who they are. They're just men of supposedly a fighting age that we may be killing as many as 50 innocent civilians for yeah. every militant who's killed. And dealing with militants by killing them isn't going to make them go away. It creates, it creates more. more militants. It yeah. creates more. So there's a lot of uh, ineffectiveness in all of this. It, it's a circular thing. And so we need to really zero in on this diplomacy, not war, on peaceful approaches to these issues. And uh, we're so grateful for your good leadership with us for these years now. Richard, that you give a lot of added credibility uh, to our work. And I, I think, by the way, I remember one thing I want to say as a final thing, which is that one time your military knowledge was extremely useful to us, is when Colin Powell uh, was making the case at the UN that Iran, uh, Iraq, excuse me, definitely had these certain aircraft that were going to be able to target. Our, our U.S. forces and so on. And you looked at those aircraft and you said, that doesn't hold up to scrutiny yeah. and you know a lot about aircraft. Yes, Tell, I, I do remember that. Tell I us think, a little bit more of the detail. I don't remember the well, details. Well, I, th I, I think, yes, he was saying that they had a certain fighter, which they, they had oh, had, yes. but they'd lost them all when they fought Iran back in right, the 80s. Right, right. Uh, and some of the pilots actually had, um, had run away to Iran, in fact. And uh, it was all totally made up. And exactly. of course, everybody believed it.
Yeah. Uh, and I think we had a, a joint letter uh, yes. in the press about it. We were able to expose that. And yeah. so we've got to always be on guard yeah. to the uh, arguments that are being put forward that are very flimsy and sometimes downright false when you hold uh, put them to up to scrutiny. So again, yes, I uh, mean, w when you have someone like Pompeo, literally hours after these two right. tankers saying, oh, Iran did it. Well, right. nobody knew. Right. And if and my argument is, if it was limpet mines, um, right. limpet mines are put on ships in harbor, not when they're sailing. Right. Where did these ships come from? Perhaps right. from the Saudi Arabia, perhaps from UAE. Good and point. one was a Japanese tanker yeah. when Iran was entertaining the Japanese prime minister. Well, and the Japanese <laughs> said that it was their tanker that was struck, of yeah. course, and they said, no, it was something that came in yeah. by flight. It flew yeah. to their... Might have been a the drone or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So but there's there's a lot of questions. And, and the other thing about the limpet mines is if Iran had put them on, why would they be taking it off? I mean, that doesn't make any sense it at doesn't. all. You it put doesn't. them on to blow up the ship, and so you would leave it there. Yes. You don't go out there. So the whole thing is just... So um, a big part of the job of we, the citizens, is to really be skeptical and to not take things at face value, to dig down, to f look for other sources, to come to the Coalition for Peace Action, help us discern... And we have great experts like you, Richard, who help us uh, know with have real knowledge, you know, about these Thank factors. You. And so we are so grateful for that. And again, special thanks to David Kelly Crow, Thank the you, producer David. of this podcast. That'll do it for this uh, podcast of Veterans and Peace with Richard Moody. Thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you.